Welcome to Open Banking Expo Unplugged, bringing you the brightest minds in open banking, open finance and beyond. Hello and welcome to the Open Banking Expo Unplugged podcast. My name is Ellie Duncan. I'm Head of Editorial and Broadcast at Open Banking Expo and, as always, your host for this episode. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by Alan Bondi, who is the Chief Marketing Officer at Trevi Pay. Now, Trevi Pay is a global B2B payments and order-to-cash platform. Alan's has extensive experience uh, and, and we'll go on to find out a bit more about his, his background in the industry. But one of his previous roles was as VP for Forrester's Digital Transformation Practice. And recently, uh, since joining Trevi Pay, he's been writing numerous articles all about the state of B2B payments, customer experience and digital transformation, all of which are really key themes that we've been covering quite a bit here at Open Banking Expo. So welcome to the podcast, Alan. Oh, so happy to be here. This is going to be fun. Good, good. Well, let's start with probably a very straightforward question from your point of view. But for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with Trevi Pay, can you tell us a bit more about what it is you do, what what your offering is, please? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, we are, in fact, a global B2B payments and invoicing platform. But what does this mean, right? So big sellers think about General Motors or Lenovo or Staples use us to provide, and we'll get into this, more choice, more convenience in terms of payments for their business buyers. So we are B2B, not on the consumer side. We also provide, there's sort of a banking part of what we do. We provide trade credit and tools for accounts receivables automation, like all that back office stuff. And meanwhile, and this is a huge topic, we'll get back to it. We we also provide some pretty sophisticated fraud and risk management as well. And so it's a pretty unique, and I'd say global business too. In fact, we support these trading networks in 32 countries. So it's based in the US, but also, as we'll talk about, around the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and as you say there, fraud and risk, um, huge areas to, to talk about, the idea of you know, choice as well in, in payments. But first of all, perhaps let's let's go back in time a bit. Can you kind of tell us a bit more about your own background? Because I know that you joined Trevi Pay. So was it at the start of this year? It was, yeah, coming up on five months. So relatively new to Trevi Pay, but absolutely not new to this space. Although I would say I'm probably not your typical guest, right? I started in tech way back. I've been around the e-commerce and the consumer experience space for, I don't even want to say 25-ish years, you know, as a consultant, as a practitioner, as uh, a marketer. As you said, I did run the digital transformation team at Forrester Research, which is kind of a cool place to be, right? As an analyst, you're in the middle of a lot of things. And that's really where I started to get to know Trevi Pay, which was then known as MSTS. This is going back probably five years so I'm new to Trevi Pay, but I'm not new to following Trevi Pay, if that makes sense. And then earlier in my career, I also spent some time as a consultant um, at McKinsey and my own firm, mostly looking at e-business and digital platforms and early online advertising. And I've, in between all that, done a few startups as well. So I've had a few adventures. Yeah, I noticed that your LinkedIn profile listed a, a few startups that you'd founded. So it's really long that that profile. I have to I have to trim it back. <laughs> yeah. Let's come on to talk a bit more about payments. I mean, payments is a word that, I mean, we could go on for talking about payments generally for several hours, but let's talk about kind of the role of, of payments in kind of creating this sort of loyal 
customer base. So obviously, as, as you say, Trevi Pay is in the kind of B2B payment space, but but ultimately those businesses are, are going on to sort of serve consumers. So how do we kind of go about building loyalty when, when we're talking about payments? So, and you just hinted at this. So one of the key, I guess, learnings I've had is that these, the worlds of B2B and B2C are continuously blurring, right? That, that, you know, even business buyers, hey, when they go home are consumers. And even during the day, they're playing the role of a consumer buying things for themselves versus for the business. So if you sort of zoom out, we'd like to say that loyalty actually begins at the payment and literally and figuratively, right? That as you start to transact with an organization, then there's the opportunity to create that relationship and loyalty. So it actually begins at the payment, but also we think that how you present the payment options, that experience is also key to loyalty. So what does this mean? Like real tangible examples. First, um, whether you're a consumer buyer or a business buyer, it means aligning with like, what are the wants and needs? Like I need to pay with this option, but I really want to have this flexibility. So it means aligning with the buyer wants and needs like how do they want to pay on what device do they want to pay maybe they want to pay on terms the whole buy now pay later movement has moved from business which was always the case right business is buying on terms to now consumers paying in installments so there's that example and even just think about our our daily lives like if you like Starbucks all the different ways you can pay at Starbucks there's literally like 15 different ways you can pay believe it or not so those options to me make the experience more personal and sticky if you think about the consumer side. So that's the sort of choice part. You need to offer that and that's choice drives loyalty. Second, when you think about sort of the payments world, the networks, the invoicing as a flow of transactions, right? And that's of course the way that you know bankers think about this or systems people think about it. There's a ton of data that can be drawn from that, right? That helps sellers better segment their offers or connect with different buyer needs. And so I would say broadly, if choice and convenience sort of are the foundations for how payments drive loyalty, that creates better CX, right? Customer experience is is the thread and customer experience drives loyalty. And there's tons of people, including Forrester and others that have tracked this correlation between customer experience and loyalty. I think payments are at the center of this. And so that's that's somewhat long-winded, but it's all connected, right? What kind of experience do people want, whether they're a business or a consumer? What sort of choice do they demand? And then what? how do they pay and how they continue to interact with you absolutely is part of the way that they view the experience and, and the relationship. And that more positive relationship, more flexibility drives loyalty, which is, you know, we can measure, right? Like bigger order value or lifetime value or things like that. There's a lot of measures of that that are often associated with customer experience, but the mechanics of it often are basically transactions and payments, if that makes sense. And then I guess you use the word choice there a a few times and and the fact that there is this flexibility now at checkout that wasn't there, you know, just a few years ago. Obviously, a really important part is the customer experience, as, as you mentioned there. So how do you kind of offer all of those choices and those flexible options, but still deliver a good checkout experience? This is a great point because there is that sort of paradox of choice, right? You you may paralyze someone if they have 20 different options. And especially in a consumer scenario where the checkout, right, abandoned, card abandonment is a big deal. And if you give too many choices, 
sort of the opposite. Like if, if I don't see the option I want in terms of payment type or shipping options, then I may not make that purchase. But if I see 20 of them, I may say, well, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to come back and then maybe you've lost them. So I think that it's, it's the ability to provide choice, but not all, always offering all those choices, knowing what the preferences are. And especially like if you think about the, um, the business to business world, there's probably fewer transactions, but bigger ticket purchases. And this is really our world where you may be buying big parts for a, a, a lorry, right? In your replacement engine. I mean, this is a big purchase and you have that relationship with them and it has to be just right. And in that scenario, many big business to business purchases are not happening on a credit card. They're, they're, you know, you need to have some terms or you're requiring an invoice with certain characteristics. So in that case, you kind of know what the choice is. And so I think it's the ability to offer all the choices that your buyers would want, but also tailoring it to specific types of purchases, types of buyers, types of geographies, things like that. The other thing is that, and it's funny because back to the loyalty question, the choice of options is actually a key part of consideration when you look at the research. So in research that we've done, nine out of 10 corporate buyers, if we flip to the, the to the business side, they do research the payment options before buying from a new vendor. So it's part of the consideration, not just of the purchase for an item, but actually should we set up a relationship with that vendor? So in that case, you better know what they want and you better present that to them. Oh, sure. You want to pay on terms or you need extended terms or you want discounted pricing based on how much you buy, or you want to use, uh, you know, vouchers or whatever that modality is, you better know that ahead of time. So they don't see every single option. They just see the one they want, which is, well, it's back to experience. It's sort of magic when your, your merchant just sort of knows you enough that you're like, oh, of course you're going to pay as usual, right? Oh yeah. Go back to Starbucks, right? They, they just know that that's how you, we want to pay in the app. So every time they expect you're going to pay in the app. Yeah. And that idea of knowing your customer and, and then you know, the customer knowing their merchant is, is a really interesting one. So in, in your view, Alan, what, what does, you know, the ultimate kind of checkout experience look like? What, what, what if you had a kind of bullet point checklist, what would you want to be on there? So let's go back to some of the consumer examples, because we sort of know them when we see them. And if you look at, I guess, brands that have sort of noteworthy or award-winning experiences, and companies like Forrester actually track this every year, right? They look at their customer experience index and they rate by different sectors. So you look at companies that tend to appear on that list or multiple winners, people like Amazon. And we re- we overuse Amazon as an example, but it's pretty good and it's consistent. Or you look at Ikea, you know, if, if you like the Ikea experience or even Virgin Mobile, those are all companies that consistently are, are on those lists of, you know, best experience. And if you generalize, and this is how we think about it, it tends to be a function of three things. Is it easy? Like to your point, like I'm not overwhelmed with choices. There's just the choices I want. It's simple. So easy. Is it fast? In the case of business to business, you may be a new buyer and you need to get set up with credit and you can't like wait around hours or a day or a week or whatever to get that credit. This idea of sort of instant credit approval is is a real thing in business to business. Like I need this item for my factor right now. I you know, I need sort of instant approval. So fast is really important. And then back to smart sort of, does the merchant know me? Does the merchant indicate that they understand my preferences? And back on sort of the back end, like can the system, the merchant spot if I actually didn't make that purchase, right? When we get into the 
to the fraud side. So I think there's different ex- different expressions of being smart, but ultimately I think good is a function of easy and fast and smart. But then you zoom out into those are kind of like you can see that in consumer experiences if you go out to a business to business scenario. There's a lot more complexity typically, not always. I mean, if a business is buying from an electronics company or a office supply company, they kind of act like consumers, like I need three chairs or I need five laptops. But if you're thinking about selecting a more complex industrial product or medical product, there's a whole bunch of complexity in selecting it and placing the order and setting up how you want to pay for it and grouping the purchases by some account number and managing all the back office. So I think good also extends to the experience for the team that's part of that buying process and making sure that they feel like you have their best interests, right? You need this information on an invoice, no problem, we can put it there. So that helps with reconciliation. So I think that that's, that's sort of the two sides. There's the front end experience, and then there's the back end experience so that the business feels like you're a proper partner. And that's where we get into the so-called like order to cash process, right? Which is a kind of digital transformation. And in that back end also could include like how easy it is for doing the funding part or the approvals and all that. So it's good as relative to the party in the transaction, which could be the direct buyer, but could be their team that handles the payables as well. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and I suppose, you know, you mentioned there actually about that, that security element. And that's so important, isn't it? Because we see huge numbers of fraudulent transactions being reported. All of this as well is probably something that, that's playing on businesses and consumers' minds, isn't it? When they get into that that payment, uh, that checkout point, they're thinking, well, is this secure? How do I know it's secure? Is that something that checkouts are kind of uh, signposting well enough, do you think? How, how do we go about kind of making sure that, or reassuring, I suppose, businesses and, and consumers that security and privacy really is is utmost? I mean, this is such a hot topic and there's the, I think the trust element. And I think that's that's a good way to think about it, you know, for the different parties. Is this a trusted payment provider? Is the merchant trusted? There's a lot of the ways that you can sort of indicate that in a consumer setting. In a business setting, it's more about the relationships that you have. Because we're sitting in the middle of you know, the buyers, the sellers, even different funding partners like banks. And so I think there's the element of collectively providing that trust and assurance, but also backing it up with, um, you know, the risk and fraud back end. And that's where a lot of the innovation is happening too, right? And being able to spot that fraud sort of in the network. I mean, think about when you use a credit card, if you travel, the credit card companies have got this down to a science at this point. You know, you travel to some city that you've never been to, you start charging and you get a text that says, you know, just checking that this was you. And so I think that that awareness and the ability when you operate these networks, data is your friend because you can see those patterns and you can decode. And that to me is the back end of fulfilling the vision of trust, which is, okay, this is a trusted partner, but also like, how can that partner demonstrate it if either you have an unusual pattern and it's spotted or... God forbid you actually didn't make those charges. You know, I I didn't actually buy these computers and it's spotted before they're shipped and they disappear. Yeah, like you say, I guess in the B2B world, that is a key kind of characteristic or, or 
aspect of the, of the relationship before before you're even kind of signing contracts with one one another, right? Hundred percent, right? That's that's we see this with new accounts and as they're onboarding new buyers because we sit in the middle of that, right? We're we're working with the sellers, but really we're working on behalf of the sellers to support their buyers. And sometimes we're the intermediary in terms of, you know, funding and providing credit to some of those buyers. And there's a lot of trust that has to be established, especially when there's longtime buyers of these sellers and maybe we're relatively new to them. But what's interesting is one way that that some of the big brands get around this or or address it is we're white we're white labeled, right? So um, you know, if you buy from certain retailers, we're just their business credit service. And so we're we're actually behind the scenes. And that's it's an interesting challenge when you do marketing for a company that also has white label customers. And we sort of joke sometimes that, well, you maybe never heard of us, but you've heard of the the big merchants that we work with, because kind of by design, often we prefer to operate however they want us. Sometimes we're behind the scenes and we just are the the business credit offering. Sometimes they like branding it as, you know, use Trevi Pay to pay. And certainly companies like PayPal have done that really well, where people recognize that PayPal is, you know, is trusted. So sure, I'm going to pay with PayPal. Yeah. And and look, we've talked so much already about uh, about the fact that the, the kind of payments landscape is evolving and it's evolving quickly. And it's great to see so many merchants and consumers and businesses kind of buying into that and, and you know, evolving uh, their payment practices with it. But But what are the implications of failing to evolve payment options for enterprises, do you think? It's funny because this is kind of a classic, you know, fear of missing out, right? Where the buyers, yeah, the, the, the buyers are setting the rules. So if you don't want to evolve, that's fine. But your buyers also are, are happy and willing to move on to somebody who does. And I think, you know, we see this especially in digital commerce or online commerce scenarios where, you know, an option may be just a click away. Now in business to business, it's not exactly that because there may be certain suppliers that you can only get, you know, you there's there's maybe not as many cross-shopping opportunities in some parts of business to business. But I'd say the implication ultimately is, well, go back to what the buyer's preferences are. So if the buyers are setting the rules, and I think most companies agree that your buyers, they they tell you like how to jump and where to jump and when you like, right? They they set the rules. So if they want to pay by, you know, think about all the different options. They want to pay by check or by wire or by direct debit or on a card or on their phone. You know, you better be ready to support that, not presenting all the options, but knowing which one they want. Back to your point before. More broadly, in business to business, some of them may need to pay on certain terms or expect to get volume discounts or, you know, there's a lot of other variations. And so business business is just pretty complex and and to be honest the trivia paid business is has to also be pretty complex because of all this variability so i think the implication is not just supporting all the things but being mindful of of exactly the form and like what appears on the invoice in this field that they need to do reconciliation or something like that then there's all these other sort of i kind of call them edge cases but we do support them like supporting rebates or supporting vouchers. We have some clients that actually present, you know, vouchers to their employees that they can go and redeem for, you know, safety equipment or gear for their work sites or things like that. So those maybe are unusual scenarios, but if you couldn't provide that option, like literally 
giving a, a voucher to the store to get your safety boots, then they're not going to be able to work with you. So I think that's, there's definitely a FOMO there, but also it's, I think it's back to choice and convenience. And then you choose like where you're focused. And if, if your buyers need something, you probably better support it or they may go elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, yeah, it comes, comes back to that, that loyalty point. So we've heard a lot about what, what Trevi Pay is already offering. And I know you, Alan, you're based in, in the US, but Trevi Pay also has plans for the UK market, doesn't it? So can you tell us a bit more about its, its growth plans? No, absolutely. And, and, and as you mentioned, I just came back from the UK. Um, you know, I'd say overall, we're focusing more on a number of growth markets and, and the UK is absolutely one of those, full stop. Even just if you look at what we're already doing, and so without naming names, right, we're now working with both the leading heavy goods vehicle manufacturer in the UK, which a keen observer could figure out who that is, as well as the top three UK electronics and tech retailer. So we have some really good anchor clients that are based in the UK. We're investing in groups like the British American Business Association. We're going to do some events with them. I'm really keen to do more events in the UK because... You know, I've had really good experiences doing that sort of retail, you know, business development. Some of the key industry analysts we work with are actually based in the UK, some of my former colleagues from Forrester. And broadly, it's an important market because one of our key third-party lending partners, one of the big banks that we work with, is also based in London. So I would say that we're going to build on these pillars in the UK, but also given that our focus is manufacturing and retail and transportation and hospitality. Well, there's some pretty big names that are based in the UK. So it's an important market for us, but also like any market where we have some good proof points and a lot of what we do is relationship driven because shockingly or not, our sales cycles can be pretty long. So it really is about building that trust and having those long-time relations. The good news is some of our clients have been with us, no joke, for two or three decades. So once we start working with some of these companies, um, usually we're with them for a long time. So we kind of can play the long game that way. Yeah. And and what about elsewhere? You know, you meant obviously talk about the UK there, but what about the rest of, of Europe? Any any kind of plans to to build on on that region? Yeah, sure. So so most of our team in Europe is in the Netherlands. That's where there's some historical business. Yeah, so that's a focus area. You know, Europe overall has some obviously very big manufacturers, especially in in Germany. You know, they're a good target for us outside of Europe. Australia has been a good market for us. It's a pretty global company, right? We, as I mentioned, we work in 32 countries, and I'd say that the the common thread is these relatively comp- complex global businesses that serve a variety of buyers, but like cross border is a big thing. And so certainly um, when people are complex, but also they're transacting in multiple regions and they have a relatively sophisticated buyer base, like big, big ticket items, say around uh, industrial machinery or trucks or wind power, things like that. Some really interesting industries, those tend to be driven by tech, driven by manufacturing clusters like in Europe or in North America. Those are just good areas for us. And a lot of that business still happens shockingly in person. As opposed to, even though we've been sort of working from home, many of us, it still happens via these associations, 
via trade shows, you know, in person sort of demonstrating what we can do. So we're, we're still getting on planes and going and visiting people. It's not happening, happening digitally, even though we're a digital company. Huh. That's weird. <laughs> well, um, great to be, to be back out there seeing, seeing people in person. And, you know, you mentioned the fact there that some of your clients have been with Trevi Pay for, for decades, you know, not just, not just years. And, and that really demonstrates a, a great sense of loyalty. But also in that time, you know, I guess they'll have seen a huge amount change within the payments industry. So, you know, even even more recently, we've, we've seen payments moving in leaps and bounds. So I was wondering, Alan, what you think when you look back over the past, say, 12 to 18 months, what you think has been the kind of biggest innovation or evolution maybe in the B2B payments space? What's really struck you, I suppose? So I'm going to focus on two things that stand out, but also one thing that's coming. So so we'll look back and then we'll look forward a little bit. So first, and I hinted at this before, right? This continuous blurring of what business and consumer buyers expect, right? This This sort of like, who's really a consumer and who's really a business buyer? And even if you're a retailer that says, no, we sell to consumers, we often find that they're actually selling to small businesses and they're selling to some big businesses and especially in areas like you know, electronics, computers, hospitality. I mean, just go down the list and you're like, okay, you're not really selling to just consumers. So that that whole blurring of experiences started, but is not ending. And then once you do that, then it's blurring the payment options they expect, right? With the rise of buy now, pay later for consumers, which, or mobile payments, and the businesses want the same, but then you could say, well, wait a minute, all businesses have always expected buy now, pay later. It's actually a new thing for consumers, but not for businesses. And you flip it around, like mobile payments is mostly for consumers, but actually business buyers want the same. So this this blurring, I'd say, is driving a lot of innovation or evolution, as you say. And that's that's happening, especially coming out of COVID. It happened, it accelerated in COVID, but also it's happening coming out of COVID. So that's one. The other one is perhaps the most hyped thing of all time, which is artificial intelligence. And so I just happened to have started my career in AI coming out of grad school. So I sort of roll my eyes when people think that it's this new thing. But genuinely, in the last whatever year, there is a lot of real application of AI or machine learning you know, in this space. And to me, it's like impacting two things we talked about, right? One is improving the experience in terms of more targeted offers or recommendations or better search engines or things like that. That's absolutely happening. But also behind the scenes, and we go back to sort of how do we reduce risk and operational costs as businesses move into new markets that maybe they don't know enough about, right? It's not the olden days where you knew your trading partners like, you know, I know Jim or I know Mary, so like they're trusted. With digital, maybe you don't know them. And so I think there's a big role for AI to help with sort of managing that risk. And like a real example, like our tools apply machine learning to look at all different types of data sources to spot signals that could actually indicate fraud. And there's, you know, this is happening across the credit card space. That's not a new thing, but the sophistication of the AI and machine learning techniques applied to that data, I'd say that's that's a legit thing and that's happening more and more. It's It's the sort of sneaky, important role of AI that's not, you know, bots taking over the world, but rather bots that are looking out for you behind the scenes. One thing looking forward, e-invoicing, right? The requirement 
that's coming in multiple geographies, and we've been talking about this a lot as a team, is how different um, regions are mandating e-invoicing at different points in time over the next few years and how businesses can support that and move from maybe the old way of doing things to a proper e-invoicing and making sure that the you know the VAT is taken care of and all of that. And that's happening, right? And it's happening at different timescales. But as that happens, I think that's going to drive innovation. Actually, it's going to drive urgency in certain types of business sectors to make sure that they can support that or, you know, risk not being able to operate in certain regions. So I think the two things looking back in terms of the blurring of business and consumer experiences and AI, and one thing looking forward, which is getting ready for e-invoicing. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting to note that that, that blurring is is taking place. I mean, it's kind of one of those innovations or, or trends that now you mention it, it feels like it's been happening, but but it's not particularly obvious. And then the point about AI, I think, is really important that you make, you know, because obviously a lot of people are talking, you know, in the media at the moment about AI being all about robots and how, you know, we should all be scared of it. But I, I think the way you put it there is is that this kind of AI is all about providing that kind of reassurance and of actually kind of working in the background, as it were, you know. Well, it's AI as a tool versus AI as a replacement. And this is, you know, there's a, you just have to watch the conversations on LinkedIn about all the different points of view and people jumping up and down about the large language models and chat GPT and all this. And as someone who's done this for way too long, I have to keep on jumping in and saying, it's a tool, it's a tool, it's still a tool. And some of the best tools just happen to help you in the background. Now, are there still use cases that we haven't imagined and are there risks, you know, if whatever. I, I won't get into the possibilities on the downside, but different AI techniques are absolutely providing really critical like processing or or pattern recognition or data analytics at the back end. If you think of AI more from an analytics approach versus a bot, it just makes sense that all the different ways across banking systems that AI, I mean, it's been happening uh, in the credit space forever. I mean, if you think about the, you know, the FICO score, that was one of the early applications of neural networks. I just happened to know because I, I was studying that back in graduate school. And so in the, fi- in the financial space overall, AI has been sort of happily working behind the scenes. And now you see it more pushed to the fore. But I think over the last few years, people are both reminding themselves that, yeah, it's actually useful behind the scenes, but also maybe it can be useful like as a advisor in a in a investment banking scenario or as something that is looking across your portfolio and saying, hey, you know what? You make these sort of trades, maybe you should, you know, upgrade to this sort of an account. So there's lots of examples that I think AI can be a very helpful tool or a helper to this process. And it's not all about just, you know, bots taking over the world. Well, Alan, I think on, on that note, we shall we shall wrap up there. And thank you so much for joining me to talk all about TreviPay. Some of the, the really fascinating innovations that are going on in the in the payment space as well at the moment. It's been great to have you on the podcast. My pleasure. Anytime. My thanks again there to Alan Bondi from Trevi Pay. Great to have him on. Lots to talk about uh, in the payment space at the moment. Hopefully that got you thinking about a, a few of the innovations on the B2B side of things anyway. Uh, for all the recent episodes of the Open Banking Expo Unplugged podcast go to the on-demand section of the website 
And you'll find us also on LinkedIn. We often post about our latest episodes on there as well. Until next time, goodbye for now.